Hi, and welcome to Owner Operated. I'm your host, Jesse Sapphire. Today we have on a terrific guest. Amy Woodall is the CEO and founder of the Black Sheep Agency, which is a cause-driven marketing, brand strategy, and design agency based in Houston, Texas. Amy is a proud graduate of the University of Texas and founded her company in 2009. Since then, she has worked with clients like Michelle Obama to the Federal Reserve of Houston and even famous Houston rapper Trey The Truth. She's done this while her company has been accredited as a B Corp, all of which I'm excited to hear more about. This episode is brought to you in part by ABG Print, a commercial digital printing company in NYC, and yep, you guessed it, the Black Sheep Agency. After the interview, check out their very unique website at theblacksheepagency.com. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. I'm excited to kick off the new year with you. Yeah, this is uh, great. Appreciate you joining. So I got to start off um, with, I, I feel like I just said some words that if someone asked me to define them, I'm not sure I would get it right. So um, the first one I want to start out with, I feel like the word agency is used all the time. What, what exactly is an agency? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, and I, I don't think anybody's ever actually asked me that before. An agency is just a term, I guess you could also call it a firm or you could call it an organization. It's just another word for a collection of people who are creatively trying to move clients forward. Um, I don't know if there's much more of a definition to it than that. And now there's a lot of different kinds of agencies. There's uh, you know, creative agencies define themselves as PR firms, as advertising shops, as marketing consultancies. Uh, you know, there's, there's lots of different uh, definitions once you get under the uh, agency umbrella. And we define ourselves as brand strategy because we feel like that's the most encompassing term, but even that requires some explanation. Uh, and to us, that just means that we're working with a client wherever they are in their life, whether that's a new company, like a startup, or whether that's a company that has kind of outgrown their identity and uh, needs to evolve, or whether that's a really established company that is trying to level up in some way and accelerate the impact that they're making. So. Um, it includes a lot of different things. You mentioned design in, in my intro, um, but really what we do is take a real big step back with the client and look at where they are strategically, where they're trying to get, and then we help them build strategy around communicating that to the public in a way that invites the public in and, and captures their attention and makes them want to follow that journey. Got it. So if you know, you kind of mentioned it within the broad world of, of agencies, there's many different niches. It seems like you've, you've carved out a space for yourself, certainly um, in cause-driven, certainly to some degree in Houston. Are, are all your clients based in Houston or do you have uh, global clients or, or excuse me, national clients as well? Uh, we do a little bit of both. We, we do a lot of work in Texas. Uh, we do a lot of work right in our backyard in Houston, um, but we have national clients and, and at times international clients. Um, some of the most notable being the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, uh, the Obama administration. We worked on a campaign that we're, we're still working on. Um, it's transferred out of the Obama administration and to an organization called 
the Common App, um, but we do a lot of higher education work with them um, and others sprinkled, sprinkled kind of across the country. Awesome. And, and when, we'll get into how you started and, and, and more about your agency in a bit, but you know, on its surface, it seems like a, like a tall ask, right? I, I'm a printer. When someone needs something printed, they look for a printer, right? Mm -hmm. How does someone know they need brand strategy? How do, how do you even think about offering that to someone? How do they know to come to you for that? And, and how do you, you know, even begin that, that sale process of, no, go ahead and trust me. I'm, I'm going to represent your brand. It's not like, you know, I mean, I can print signage and pamphlets, but right. It, that's, it, it's a totally different um, mentality. I imagine. T tell me a little bit about that. Sure. So, you know, one thing I should probably further define is that we are an agency that also has beyond just defining ourselves as brand strategy. We have a very specific niche. We work in the impact space. This also requires further definition most of the time, uh, but, but for us, it falls into three categories. We work with a lot of nonprofits. That's pretty straightforward. We work with a lot of government organizations who are trying to build better communities, build better regions, um, change the nation in some way. Um, and then we work with for-profit companies who are focused on social impact and trying to do business while making the world a bit better. So they're balancing purpose with profit and, and you know, trying to create some change through the way that they work. Uh, because of this niche, uh, you know, it, one might think that it would be harder <laughs> even to find us. First, you have to know what an agency is and know you need an agency. Um, then you have to understand how you fit into that ecosystem. But we've been really, really lucky. Um, I don't know. Hard, there's a lot of hard work that goes into it. So it's hard to even call it lucky. But being as specific as we are about the kind of people that we help and then doing really good work has led to this um, kind of perpetuating lead generating system because a lot of the people that we work with care about impact, not just the impact they're making, but the impact other people are making. And they talk, they share ideas for how to accelerate their missions. And so we, we are on an endless cycle of referrals. And then also a lot of the organizations that we have worked with have boards of directors and those leaders are inevitably involved in other things. And so those leaders, you know, see how we change the trajectory of one organization and then they wanna bring us in with another organization they're working on. But that, that's really specific to us. And so, you know, to speak to the industry at large a little bit, I would say most people don't usually know what they need. Um, and that's, that's our job. But what brings them in the door is usually something like, I want more attention on what we're doing. Or I think I need a media relations firm because I want more press attention. I want us to be in the media more often. And that, that's not actually even something that we do. We work with great media relations partners that, that handle that side of things. But usually that's what brings someone to us. They know that they're doing something that other people should know about. 
and they finally hit a wall with trying, you know, hoping that it'll, it'll just happen. Um, and, and they come to us with some sliver of an understanding of what we do and some sliver of an understanding of what they need. And then we have great conversations. We spend a lot of time in that new business process, really getting to know a client and to understand if we're the right person to help them accomplish what they're aiming to accomplish. And then, you know, if, if, if we're capable of doing what they need done, and then also like, are they the kind of client that we want to work with? Do they meet the criteria of really having genuine impact integrated into their business or their plans? And um, are they, are they nice to work with? That's a big part of how we make decisions too. <laughs> Got it. And, and so um, I, I want to hear a little bit more about, so it, it sounds like part of your initial sales process is it, a lot of your clients come to you to, to solve problems that um, you don't even necessarily specialize in, but through chatting with them, you kind of land on what they really need that they didn't even know they needed in the first place. And that's what you do. Absolutely. So if they come, if they come to us and say, this is what I'm looking for, this is what I need, we immediately start asking questions, uh, you know, because that's what they've identified to the best of their ability that they need. And usually there's something much deeper underneath that, you know, like someone to, to, to just go down to the most basic um, and maybe something that you see a lot in your business in printing you know, somebody might come and say, I really need a new brochure or I need an annual report. And that just starting to ask questions there, like, why do you need a brochure? What are you trying to accomplish? Who do you think is going to read that brochure? And, you know, sometimes they come to us with a small request like that. And it turns into something so much bigger because we start asking those questions and really a brochure wouldn't do the job a brochure would sit on a shelf or a brochure might be something great to leave behind at those meetings, but what's actually going to get them in for the meetings. So, you know, asking questions is, is always the place to start. Like, why is the first question? Why, why are you looking for that? And, and what is this about? What's the bigger goal? What's, you know, like let's dream big and then scale it down from there instead of starting with this one very prescriptive thing um, and trying to, to deliver exactly what you, you think that is. And, and so did you always start off with this niche of, of cause-driven companies and institutions, or did that, you know, did you define that um, as your agency progressed? Well, I can say that that was in, like, that was somewhere deep inside of me all along, because that's why I left my old, my old job. I grew up in the agency industry uh, and I finally just hit a wall, like many people do in the, in the industry, where I, you know, I didn't want to create marketing strategies for industrial plants anymore, or, you know, Hawk Bank services. No offense to the people that work in those jobs; they work very hard, and those things are necessary. But like, that wasn't fulfilling to me at the end of the day. And agency work is hard; you really grind, and uh, you know, there's no. It, it's, it's an, it's a long journey. And when you don't feel good about it at the end of the day, it's hard 
to not burn out. And I just burned out. So I, so I left there, I started Black Sheep. And from the name, you can automatically tell that I was rebelling against something. And it was about six months into establishing the business that we started working with this incredible nonprofit called Neighborhood Centers. It's, they're now called Baker Ripley. So if anybody decides to look them up, they're, they're the largest nonprofit in Texas and they employ about 1200 people and they do so many amazing things that it's hard to summarize quickly, but. So, sorry, I have to just stop you there for a second. Yeah. So six months in, you started your own agency and you land, uh, I believe you said a 1200 or 12,000 <laughs> employee nonprofit that's uh, extraordinarily renowned. Mm. How do you do that? <laughs> uh, well, passion, I think. So it started from, uh, I was out speaking. So at the beginning of my business, I burned the candle at, at from both ends and both sides. And I was out networking constantly, speaking constantly. And I, I spoke at this organization called Social Media Breakfast. And um, one of the team members from Neighborhood Centers was in the audience. And she said, I think you need to talk to our CEO. And I got wow. to know the CEO, had a meeting with her. And one thing led to another. And we started with um, one sort of isolated creative campaign project. And that project led to a nine-year relationship with that organization. But more importantly, it actually shaped the direction of my entire business because Six months in, we were up very late at the office. I think I had maybe four employees and at least one of them was an intern uh, at that point. And we were energized and it was midnight. It was, was very late. No one's ever excited to be at work that late, but we were so excited. We were so excited about getting this work and we were so excited about the creative that we had built and the strategy that we had built that we were presenting to the CEO the next day and what it would do for that organization who mm -hmm. nobody really even knew about. It was a very, it was like a huge organization, 1200, I think 1200 people at the time. Now they're probably more like 1400 or, or more, but, uh, but yeah nobody knew about this amazing work that they were doing because it was really complicated and it wasn't in the spotlight. It was like down in the trenches and we were just so energized by what the intersection of our talent and ability to tell a story and get in front of people to get their attention would do for this organization. And I remember saying that night, literally, I remember the words coming out of my mouth. What if we could just do this kind of work all the time? And I knew from the second the words left my lips that we would be doing that kind of work all the time at some point. And after that, you know, it's like the power of manifestation. Like if you say you're going to do something I don't know. For most people, I feel like that increases, there's probably some sort of statistic out there, but I think it increases the probability that you actually will do it. If you say, if you say it out loud, we actually have a campaign about that too. So anyway, one thing led to another and I, it took us about two years from that point. So about two and a half years into 
the establishment of black sheep, we became exclusively cause driven. We made a big announcement to hold ourselves accountable because we didn't want to, you know, later be, you know, nervous and, and choose money over, over purpose. So we said mm-hmm. it out loud and then we did it. So it's been a little over 11 years and we have not looked back. It's been the best decision we have ever made. Oh, it's awesome. And um, have you, so how does that work in terms of, do you interview your clients in terms of vetting them to, uh, you know, do you, do you ever say, listen, we, we appreciate the, the chance to look at this project, but, you know, unfortunately it just doesn't fit with what, what we're willing to service. How, how does that go? Weekly, we do that. Uh, and, you know, what's great is that we stick to our, our values and we refer a lot of business to great other small businesses and agencies. And, you know, we are fortunate enough to know who we are. And I think because we are so confident in who we are, we, we tell that story and the right people most of the time show up at our door because they get it. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, we've had people tell us that they cried looking at our website because they just knew they had found the people that would understand what they were trying to accomplish. Um, it's, it's like a visceral connection when, when we have the right client in front of us and it's exciting, but a lot of times people will come to us and they might not be the right fit for a number of reasons. One, they might not fall into one of those three buckets that I described earlier, in which case we know great people who do this kind of work, but in different categories. And we just refer the, those which then brings those agencies to kind of send people that fit better with us our way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sometimes people are just aren't ready for this kind of work. You know, we, we, we go full throttle and at times it might be, well, if we developed the strategy and, and set you on the right course externally to achieve these goals, you might not be staffed properly internally to handle that kind of growth and acceleration. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, or sometimes people aren't ready for the investment. We, you know, this is a a common thing that we deal with because we have big hearts and love this kind of work. You know, there can often be a misconception that we are charitable and we're, we're a for-profit business and it's, we work, we get so invested and we charge for that. You know, we, 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 we're an investment and we're an investment that makes a lot of sense when you're ready to really dramatically level up or grow your business uh, because, and, because it returns. Got it. And, and so to, to talk about um, the, the structure of your compensation, how does it work? With a with a typical agency, is it a retainer model? Is it you know a, a supplement on spend? Is you know what how how do what's the structure like? Well, I can't speak for for typical agencies, but for us, there are a number of different ways that we work. I mean, one of the things we try to do is be flexible in the way that fees work. 
because we understand as, as a business owner, I understand cash flow issues and, you know, want to be empathetic in that department. So uh, we work in a few different ways. The, the first thing that we've kind of always done since the very beginning is price out a project. And a lot of that is based on a combination of time that we in, expect the project to take and, and value. Uh, we price the project out and then we structure it like a retainer. So a lot of our work is deep. It's, there's a, an extended discovery process. There's research to be done. There's positioning to figure out. The, then there's creative and strategy work to do. So sometimes those projects can take four to six months to come to completion. And so we have the ability to not just do a 50-50 split on deposit and payment, but we can structure it out. Okay, we anticipate that the work will take six months, so let's let you pay over the course of six months. Um, mm -hmm. So that's a pretty common way of doing things in our book, but often we're funded by endowments or um, grants and things like that. And sometimes the money needs to be spent on a certain timeline. And so we've, you know, we've catered to those things as well. Uh, and then a lot of our clients end up working on retainer as well, where we've really dug in, developed a strategy for them. And then we stay on board and work through implementation or at least like kind of lift off. And then we transition it to their internal teams Sometimes we even help them hire and structure their internal teams. And then um, we might, you know, work for a three to six month period to help them get it off the ground in, in the best way possible and to coach and train their teams if they have new teams or if their teams need that kind of support. Um, and then sometimes we become their team. So in some cases, there's a one person marketing director and we are the team. Um, and in mm. that case, it's just kind of a monthly retainer sort of thing. Got it. Yeah. I love the, I, I, I think it's both confidence and possibly arrogance, but well-deserved in terms of the idea that someone would come to you and you'd say, well, I hope you're going to be able to hire enough people to for all the demand we're about to generate? Yeah, well, it's part of it is demand. And then part of it, so that's kind of referring back to the thing I said earlier, but then part of it also is, do you have the teams to actually do what the programs that we're setting up? So if we build sure. a digital plan, do you have digital people who can implement it? Um, and are they trained in the right way? And do they understand the vision? And and things like that. Yeah, but that is a, that's an absolute struggle. Um, something that we have to keep an eye on because we don't want to build powerful plans and then let them sit on a shelf because the right people aren't in place to execute. So we try to have as many of those conversations as we can up front. And I mean, I'm just a really candid person and I like to establish that level of transparency and openness with, with our clients from the beginning. Like, if we're getting into this, it's going to be like a marriage. How can we make sure that we believe in the same things and that we have the right expectations and that we also have a grip on reality? 
and what mm -hmm. will need to be done and how that will get done. Um, this is one unique, well, I don't know if it's unique, but one thing that I love just as an entrepreneur is being, we often work directly with the CEO and sitting next to the CEO and saying, let me, let me be your sounding board or let me help you. I, I, I'm a creative entrepreneur and you are a whatever category of entrepreneur working with us. Like maybe my creativity and my team's skills can help you figure out some things about your operations too. So we, we color outside the lines a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. We don't just stay in the marketing lane. Along with that, you're also a, a B Corp. What, what exactly is a, a B Corp? Well, a B Corp is a category of business that is trying to hit certain social impact criteria in the way that they conduct business and ultimately leave the world better than they found it uh, by being responsible through business, but also by looking for ways to create meaningful impact and change through the way that they're conducting business. And don't quote me on that because B Corp probably has an official definition, but that's my way of, of summarizing it. Um, mm -hmm. You go through a rigorous uh, certification process and then on a regular basis, you have to recertify so that you're held accountable to the standards that they've set forth. Uh, it's a third party called B Lab that runs it. Mm -hmm. And um, it's another thing that is not recognized as a tax, uh, tax classification yet for business. Uh, but it is, for me, it was, it was just added credibility because there's a lot of people who say they're doing certain things, you know, impact, social impact is, it's broadened kind of from the idea of greenwashing and you know how in the beginning uh, when there was this sort of environmental movement, everything became, we're green, we're, you know, we're doing this because we're, we care about the environment and there sure. were oftentimes genuine efforts and then sometimes not so genuine efforts. Um, and greenwashing just became a thing. I feel like there's like impact washing. That's not a very cool term, but, uh, but you know. No, but I, I, I know what you mean. We're, we're, I think we, you know, if, if I'm understanding what you're saying, it's, it's basically where the marketing towards the, the social impact lacks authenticity. You know? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and also impact is really difficult to measure uh, mm -hmm. and prove especially when you're working on very long-term trajectory changes, like some of the campaigns we're working on right now are about changing the statistics around unwanted pregnancy in certain areas of Texas. Mm -hmm. That's not something that happens in six months. You know, that's something that happens over years of time and, and it involves changing culture and stigma and resources and access and, there's a lot of things at play. And so sometimes you can say you're making an impact, but it's, it's not readily provable, verifiable. And, and so in light of that, how, you know, how, how do you have discussions with your clients and about, you know, and, and yourselves internally about, about whether you're doing a good job? Well, we have those conversations daily. 
And from the beginning of every relationship, we talk about measurement. We talk about what does success look like and how do we measure it? Um, you know, the, the goals are really enormous most of the time. And so how do we break that into things that we might be able to track or see? You know, for example, when we worked with the Obama administration and in some of that ongoing work, we were trying to change the number of kids that continue their education after high school, whether that's a four-year degree, a two-year degree, trade school, but how, how many students are continuing their education? And that's really hard to measure for a thousand different reasons. One is that there's like a four-year timeline to start to like really be able to track sure. things. Um, so the campaign duration is, is part of the equation. The student roadmap is part of the equation, but then everything else in the world is part of the equation too. What's happening with the economy? What's happening with schools? What's happening with administration criteria? I mean, so it's like, you, it, it's very hard to measure what your campaign is doing because there are so many other factors at play. Like, are there better parent support programs to help their kids or their better counselors or, you know, so anyway, there's just a lot at play. And that's why that's one of the reasons we became a B Corp because we're looking for ways to validate progress everywhere we can and, and just to authenticate what, what we're saying and being a B Corp helps uh, credibility in the way that it's not just us saying we're doing impact work, but we're validating that through a third party. And then, you know, we look for ways every single day with every single client to further tell that story. And um, it's an ongoing journey. <laughs> yeah, no, I can imagine it would be incredibly difficult. I mean, what are the, the types of, of metrics you find your clients are looking at or, or the types of metrics that you suggest they look at because to your point, I, I completely understand if, if, if you're, you know, trying to change, you know, um, uh, outcomes uh, within individuals uh, that happen over long periods of time, there's so many factors and um, certainly a, a long time to even just to get the data on the study, because you have to have people respond mm -hmm. to, to prove efficacy and things like that. Mm -hmm. So what are the, the kind of the near term metrics that that you recommend your clients look at? um, to, to help prove both their story and, and yours? So a lot of times we'll do upfront research to create benchmarks. So how do we measure sentiment around something? Um, a lot of times our campaigns start internally, um, trying to educate the current employees of the organization. So sometimes we'll do some internal benchmarking and that that's actually easier to continually measure because we have a lot of control around it mm -hmm. um but really at the beginning we start with a lot of vanity metrics so there are things like uh engagement online engagement participation uh with if it's a campaign with like the hashtag, how many people are talking about this? How many people are expressing themselves through this? 
you know, can we see that there's traction and people are paying attention to the message and care about it? Uh, but we, we obviously don't like, we don't like those metrics because they don't really demonstrate impact. They just demonstrate talk value and participation. So how does that convert to deeper things? And that might be, uh, a, you know, like a layer underneath the vanity metric where we're getting them to sign up for something to continue that participation in a more meaningful way, whether that's like signing up to come to a clinic or a workshop or signing up to get educational information about whatever it is that we're working with. It might be, um, you know, sometimes early on, we're looking at things like volunteer signups or donations. Um, I mean, the old school ways of measuring things and the kind of work that we do are like, how, how, what resources are coming in because of this? And usually that's time in terms of volunteer uh, hours and then money. Um, fundraising is always the first thing on most clients' minds. But sure. um, so th those are some of the ways. And then beyond that, it gets specific to the campaign. Like with uh, the COVID vaccine campaign, it might be like inbound inquiries for expert information, or it might ultimately be, you know, once the campaign was released, how did the trajectory of vaccinations change, which again, is not going to be isolated to the impact that we're making, but it's going to include a lot of factors. So you kind of have to take some of it with a grain of salt. Hey there, owner-operated listeners. Did you know you can order custom printed products on Amazon? We didn't either until COVID forced us to reinvent ourselves. That's right. The team at ABG Print got crafty and launched a printing store on Amazon. And guess what? It's kind of awesome. Want a custom calendar for 2021? How about floor graphics for your business to execute a safe reopening? Maybe custom printed envelopes or a slick retractable banner for a trade show. Flyers, postcards, wirebound presentations. ABG Print can do all that and more. We've been around since 1992, always owner-operated, and always focusing on customer service to deliver your business great printed products quickly. Head on over to abgprint.com or check out our store on Amazon at amazon.com slash abgprint. Use the promo code 10 owner op. That's one zero owner op to get 10 percent off any custom posters need something asap or have a confidential printing needs for a deal we're here to help for all of your printing needs just give us a call at 212-398-1010 okay now back to the show hey there i want to take a minute to talk to you about menuhost.io a brand new website that offers dynamic qr menus for restaurants or any other venue in the hospitality space Quickly design and implement safe menus with our library of templates and easy-to-use dashboard. Instantly change specials and pricing anytime without reprinting. Gather important data on customers with MenuHost tracking capability, which can retarget your customers with advertisements through Facebook or Google. So go to MenuHost.io now to register for free and set up your custom menu within minutes. You can even order laminated table cards directly from MenuHost. So if your restaurant, bar, cafe, salon, escape room, or anything else that uses a menu is reopening and wants to do so safely, check out MenuHost.io right now. The Black Sheep Agency is a brand strategy firm that activates people around things that matter, serving nonprofits, civic organizations, and for-profit clients with social impact at the center of their mission. Fiercely dedicated to driving change, 
Black Sheep strives to organize an army of co-conspirators who share a common vision and unite under one mission, building a future we can believe in. With clients ranging from the Obama administration to the CW network, the San Francisco Federal Reserve to the city of Houston, their work is a driving force behind grassroots causes across the nation. For more information, visit theblacksheepagency.com or find them on Instagram or Twitter at Sheer Creativity. That's S-H-E-A-R, creativity, because you know, sheep. Are you guys doing some work uh, around um, perception of the various vaccines and, and people's you know, willingness to, to take it? Not currently. Um, we are working on a few, actually two different vaccine campaigns in Texas, and they're more to do with education, pre-education, um, especially on one for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're not necessarily, I mean, perceptions certainly play into it, but there's not necessarily a campaign that's like differentiating between pharmaceutical companies or anything like that. It's just more about like acceptance of the idea of vaccination and educating and making sure we debunk myths around the vaccine. Let's talk a little bit about um, your your founder story. So you were um, working in, I believe you said PR, you're working in an agency. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you go from that work? You said you got burnt out and then to hanging up your own shingle. Um, did you bring a client? Did you quit, uh, you know, Jerry Maguire style in a huff and, and walk out? Um, you know, what what was it like and how did it how did it come to be? Yeah, I, I'd never really thought about the Jerry Maguire analogy, but it does, it does in my, in my, like rear view mirror, it does kind of feel like that. Uh, you know, I, I worked in the industry for about 10 years and most of that time was an eight year period with a particular agency. And I got really frustrated toward the end with not having permission to try new things. And this was at the top of, I guess, 2009. And the digital revolution was here to stay, accelerating at a dramatic pace. And our agency wasn't evolving as fast as I felt like it should. Um, And really, we were in the middle of a recession and what had worked before wasn't working anymore. And I just felt like there was a lack of experimentation happening and that became frustrating. So it caused, Mm -hmm. it caused some tension and without digging too deep into that, I just decided that it was time to go. And for the first time in my life, I left without a a plan, you know, a, a next thing. And I was a little bit uncomfortable with that, but it was, it was just what I had to do. So for a couple of days, I looked for another job and literally a couple of days. And I felt like every role I read about sounded like the role that, and the company environment that I was, was running from. And So I took a little road trip with my mom to visit my grandmother in, in, uh, 
Corpus Christi. And upon that journey, I got a couple of calls from clients and I had a couple of calls with friends and one thing led to another. One client said, if you're not starting your own agency, you're crazy. Mm -hmm. And wow. I just didn't really ever want to start my own agency, but when he said it, I thought, you know, he's probably, he's probably right. It was just not something that I had, you know, a lot of people dream of becoming an entrepreneur and they know I'm going to, I'm going to be my own boss from, you know, the time they're a kid. And I just, I wasn't that person. I loved being creative. I loved the responsibility of nurturing the client once I had the client and pushing the client and creating for the client. But I never really wanted to do all the back-end things that a business requires. I didn't want to be responsible for payroll. I didn't want to be, you know, wrapped up in bookkeeping. I didn't want HR responsibilities. I did not want to ever sell. I hated, that was probably the biggest thing. I just didn't ever want to have to, you know, pound the pavement. And so I think at that point, I just, the, the need to, to have a place where I felt creative freedom outweighed those things that I didn't want to do. And when I got back from that road trip, that very short road trip, it was like five or six days. I drove straight to the, the office where you get your DBA and I signed us up. <laughs> I love that imagery. Like, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, doing it, you, you did it in person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. I didn't even remember what that office is called, but you know, I Googled it from the car and, and yeah, it was, I, re I remember it was, it was, I think I remember in my head, it, I wrote a $16, wait for it, check. <laughs> I wrote a actual physical, you know, this was a government office. So I'm surprised it didn't have to be certified. Uh, I think they certified it. I mean, you know, there were people there that had notary capabilities. That's so funny. And stuff like that. That's anyway, great. it was, yeah. So um, I think it was like, I paid $16 and got my DBA and and did you, what, was it on that Corpus Christi road trip that you came up with the Black Sheep Agency? Yeah. So there's, a, there's another little part to this story where my best team member at my old agency was, was dismissed uh, in a dramatic fashion after I quit. And um, so she and I talked a little bit on that road trip and, and I said, I think I'm going to do this do you, do you want, do you want to do it with me <laughs> or do you have another plan? And, uh, you know, I think we met for margaritas when, before I left for the road trip and, and had a little, you know, discussion about it. And, and she ended up becoming my first team member. And, uh, we were on the phone sometime during that road trip and we were kicking around I, I, I pitched out some sort of a name idea and then I jokingly said, or we could just call ourselves the black sheep because that's what we felt like in this moment in our lives where we had just like exited from this place where we didn't quite fit in. And 
And as again, it's like, you know, as soon as something comes out, you just kind of know. And, and it was that same feeling. I said black sheep and I was like, oh man, that's it. That's who we are. I, that's great. I, I knew I had to ask you about that because, um, you know, black sheep to me refers to, you know, can, can certainly refer to so, so many things, right? People often, you know, we'll talk about like, you know, my, my mother always jokes around with I'm a family of three, three brothers and, you know, she'll change her mind who the black sheep is at any given time. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, the other, uh, you know, I often, you know, in thinking about your, your clients, right. Like they're, they're kind of like the opposite of black sheep, right. In many ways, cause they're actually cause driven, right. They're not, you know, sometimes, you know, I, at least in May, I, I've always associated like the black sheep with like, you know, the, the, the one certainly the one that was different. Um, but right. You know, it's, it, I guess it's also the, the, the one that, that stands out. So. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think of it in terms of like the name is provocative, like being a black sheep, whatever kind you are, whether you're the, you know, the, the stereotypical black sheep of the family, there's, there's like controversy and, and provocativeness about that. Right. And so mm -hmm. like, you know, there's a lot of agencies and organizations that, that name their companies after themselves, you know, like last names or initials or, you know, things like that. And I feel like people can never remember those, you know, it's, it, I can't, if I had a nickel for the number of times anyone said, you know, it, I don't know, it's some set of initials or it's like a bunch of letters and I can't really quite remember what it is. The, the, but, funny, thing to, the funny thing to me about that is um, like growing up, I had a dentist that had just horrific teeth and like, there's so many doctors that smoke. <laughs> and then I think about all these, these agencies, right. Which are supposed to be excellent at branding and then they have like their last names as the firm which is right. like just horrifically bad branding and i'm thinking to myself it's like dentists with bad teeth i don't i never understood it yeah it's it's we just i really wanted from the beginning i i, I was like if i'm gonna do this i'm gonna do it differently we're not going to be like other agencies we're not going to run our people into the ground the way other agencies do. We're not gonna hire and fire based on accounts the way other agencies do. By the way, we've never ever let anyone go when we've lost a client. And we once lost a client that was more than 50% of our revenue. Never let anyone wow. go in 11 years. We're not going to structure our teams the way other agencies structure their teams. Like we just wanted to do everything differently. And the name Black Sheep just symbolizes that. You know, it's like, it's a little bit provocative, but it's also, we're going to go against the current and we are going to make our clients stand out in a, you know, a crowded cluttered sea of other people making an impact because even though they're good people and they could like technically be the opposite of a black sheep, they're mm -hmm. also in a field with a bunch of other sheep and it's hard to get the attention and the dollars. I mean, all of these organizations are competing for for money for their cause and they've really got to stand out so plus right, like if, if you tell uh, somebody you're a black sheep at a party like that sticks that sticks with people yeah no i love it all right la last question on 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 the black sheep i've always been fascinated by businesses that put the in front of their name mm. 
I remember I was actually talking about this with someone the other day. I don't know if you remember this when when Facebook used to be the Facebook when mm -hmm. they first started out, they were the Facebook for a long time before they um, rebranded. Did you was that it was always the was there any debate about putting the the I mean, there's always so many companies that have the in front of their name. I'm always fascinated by like, which which way people go on that. Well, it was mostly a uh, identity trademarking issue. Um, and that's probably why a lot of people have it. It's, you know, there, there are other black sheeps. Like I'm sure you've been to a town or city somewhere in the world that has a black sheep pub. There's lots of them. Every okay. time somebody goes to one, I get a picture of it in my text messages. Um, <laughs> but there, you know, like there's, there, there are black sheep in other industries and things like that. So if we could just be black sheep, which is kind of how we refer to ourselves in conversation most of the time, we probably would be. But the black sheep agency just helped create more distinction from other organizations. I like it. I think it sounds more dignified to me. I, I, <laughs> anyway, all right. So we talked about, you know, what, uh, your agency does and, and the types of clients you have. Um, but as you mentioned in, in, in your road trip uh, to Corpus Christi, when, you know, all the things you weren't interested in, right. Mm -hmm. But all the things you weren't interested in payroll, running a business uh, sales, you mentioned uh, accounting, um, you know, looking at all the, the reports you have to do that, how much of that did you have to learn on the job and, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, tell me about your experience with, with, with all of that. Like, you know, when did that become real for you? <laughs> Immediately. Uh, well, okay. So the, the, the debt I owe to the agency that I worked at before is that for a long time, I did have a lot of uh, permission to, own things and and also a lot of responsibility. I, I gained responsibility very quickly within that agency. So I was running my accounts holistically. There was no one senior helping me per se. Um, I mean, there were some collaborators, but like there wasn't anybody, sure. you know, overseeing that. So I I had a really good idea of how to run at that agency, we had it split. We had two teams and I was running a team. So essentially running a team there was like running an agency. So I knew how to do most of it with the exception of payroll and sales, I guess. And um, well, you know, HR is certainly a, a craft but I also have always been a person that studies people and cares deeply about people. And I think that's a lot of that with the, like, with the exception of the legal stuff that comes with HR, a lot of that helps get you a running start in the HR side of things. Um, so let's see, I, you know, I, I just jumped right into it. I, I think that sales has actually been the biggest surprise for me because I thought of sales as, you know, like this really uncomfortable cold call or like an awkward meeting where you have to be a certain kind of person to close the deal, you know, just like all the stereotypical imagery of sales that you see portrayed on television and 
things like that. Sure. And what I realized quickly, once I had a real business and I had an idea of what I wanted that business to be. And I also had me and um, Lindsay, who was my, my team member that I mentioned earlier, once once I knew what we were capable of and we had sort of a positioning around that, it wasn't sales anymore. It was like pure passion and belief in our capabilities and in the way that we wanted to do things. And I just was so fired up talking about that, that it sold itself more or less. And, you know, I think sometime earlier in the conversation, you asked me about whether or not we had clients that came with us. And we did, we had a couple of clients that ended up jumping on board right at the beginning that gave us some stability, which was really nice. And, Mm -hmm. and, and room to start having conversations because things didn't happen overnight. You know, we didn't have an enormous portfolio. We were a new company. Um, But the sales part has actually become my favorite part of the job because I just believe in our team so much. I, now we have 11 years of proof in what we can do. And I, if I could do nothing else, but just talk to people about it, I would be really thrilled. Um, there's a lot that I'm still doing aside from that, but. Sure. Well, and especially because it sounds like a lot of your sales is driven by, you know, both networking and, and the work you do for existing clients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, the other stuff is, is still not my favorite, um, but now I have a director of operations who manages all of our HR and our culture, which is one of my greatest priorities uh, in running this business every day is, is just building this culture. With the day that we opened Black Sheep, I said, I want this to be the best place that anybody can ever imagine working. And I wake up every day trying to keep that our reality. And even though I think it's a great place to work now, it's, I'm always looking at what can make it a better place to work. So, um, so I have that support. I have a managing director who helps with a lot of business development and uh, talent assignment and like how work is flowing through the agency. She keeps track of when we need new work and, you know, when we can fit things in and things like that. So I have a ton of support. I just hired a chief of staff who's also our head of equity, diversity, and inclusion. And, uh, you know, she started yesterday. So that's just the beginning of that. But um, I have new support in so many areas. So lots of new goals uh, for the for the agency in terms of new offerings and, and growth this year. So we'll see where it all goes. What is some advice you've received that that's been helpful? Or what is the type of advice that that you do, you know, that you love to hear? that's, that's helped you in, in, in managing your business along the way? Well, one of the things, I guess you could look at this as as advice. I (laughs) actually, this is probably the, the winner. I had a board president, one of our, one of our nonprofit accounts, the board president and I became friends and he was one of those people who was just kind of frustratingly always right about things. And I gave him a call one day to let him know that 
one of our employees on his team was leaving and we had a conversation about it. And at the end of the call, he said, have you ever read the great game of business? And I said, no. And he said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to send you the link to that book when we hang up the phone and you should read it because I think it'll solve some of your problems. It's a book that was written 20 some odd years ago about open book management and financial transparency and literacy in, in business. And anyway, I was, I was, the book didn't look that good to me. It looked like one of those typical business books that you kind of read early in your career because you thought mm -hmm. you should. And anyway, I, I, I knew that because he suggested I read it, I should read it. And so I did. And I, it, it resonated so much with me that I actually tore the book into three parts as I was reading it. So I read the first third and then I like literally ripped the spine of the book and gave the first third of the book to my uh, director of strategy at the time. Then I got through the second third of the book and I ripped that part and I gave that to her. And then I had her give the first part to our managing director. Um, and then I read the last part and then we kind of rotated around to our operations team. And you might ask like, why wouldn't you just order them a book but I was <laughs> writing so much in the margins that related to why and how this would affect our team that I wanted them to see my highlights and my notes and um, mm -hmm. anyway so I have that book still to this day I don't have it right by me but um, but it's all duct taped together again because I it's it's sentimental um, sure. I love that image Shortly after that, we had the entire team read it and we rolled out what is called the great game of business, which is more or less a way of managing your company with open books uh, where everyone in the company is involved in the finances of the company and you kind of win and lose together. Uh, it has been, you know, I mentioned earlier that the the impact decision going going in that direction as a company was the best decision I've ever made. This tied with that, or maybe the right behind it is the decision to implement the great game of business, which is it was a little bit tricky because the the way it works and kind of the book itself isn't really uh, aligned with our culture. We have a very, you know, modern, open, flexible, cool culture at Black Sheep. And this is very businessy. Like the book itself is about a factory in the Midwest. Um, so when you're reading it, you kind of have struggled to see how it would apply to a business like ours, especially because the factory made widgets and, you know, we, we only have services and time um, so it, there was a little bit of a transition to figure out how to apply it to our business, but it has been so incredibly empowering. And just to give you one statistic, uh, about how powerful it's been, our, uh, our profitability has increased 
by 30% in the two years that we've been doing it. And bonuses, because of the way it works, have increased by 300%. Wow. So we're, we're, as a company, we are doing so well because of this. And it has been so powerful because the way it works is it makes everybody so tied in to how, like, you know how you hear all the time, like, you want your employees to think like an owner mm-hmm. and, and, and for, for nine years, I thought my, my employees were thinking like owners, but they weren't because they didn't have all the information they needed to think like owners. And this truly makes them think like owners at every step of the way, even when they're making small decisions on a client account, they think about the big picture and, and it just kind of changes everything. And then they are rewarded because of it because we all know where we stand. We all set a goal together. And if we meet the goal, then we all, you know, take home the, the payout from that. So uh, best advice, I guess, was to read that book. Let's talk a little bit about the pandemic and its effect on your business and, and how it's changed things for you. So talk to me about, you know, you're running your business day to day and uh, March 15th or whatever date you want to pick hits you know, what was going on for you guys and, and what changed? Well, that day for us was March 13th. I've only been to the office once since then. Uh, and you know, the, the good thing was, so we have a 17 person team at this point and we do have, um, a a really nice office that people love to go to. We love, we're, we're kind of a close knit group uh and we missed the office but we decided on march 13th that we would close and work remotely i think at the time we thought that was going to be like two or three weeks uh and then it was going to be over and of course now it's turned into a very long journey but the good news was we were, were very technology savvy. So we, you know, we were set up for remote work already. We work with a lot of remote collaborators and remote clients. So we had zoom in place, very comfortable and familiar with zoom. We worked on Slack for communication and we have a really robust project management system that, you know, catches every detail of every project and allows us to collaborate really well, even when we're not in the same place. So we, I would say we had a running start from a technology perspective and we're able to just like keep, you know, not miss a beat. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's continued. I would say being a part has allowed us to see, I don't know if it's allowed us to see some gaps, in things that we want to improve or if those gaps have widened because we haven't been together um, or if we've just evolved and new things have kind of risen to the surface but how has it impacted your how has it impacted your employee development and training well that's exactly the gap that was in my mind when i was talking we um you know onboarding we've had several employees on board in the pandemic and that's been weird you know like thinking about things bringing up things that we never realized we needed to think about like for example we just 
hired my chief of staff. We sent a computer, a desktop computer to her. She lives in North Carolina, actually. So I guess I should start by saying one thing that's opened up for us is we've decided our talent doesn't have to be in Houston anymore. Um, so she's in North Carolina. We sent a computer to her and, you know, used to, we would have the new employee walk in. There would be everything set up for them at their desk, welcome goodies and things like that. Everything preloaded on their computer. And now, you know, we're shipping a computer direct from Apple and, you know, it's like, we need a file of everything they need to download themselves on their computer. So just little things like that, that you just never really had to think about before the way that we do them is changing, I think. And then, um, you know, training, especially with new team members, I think there was a lot that relied on being in the office and seeing and hearing how things worked. Mm -hmm. And now having team members working in isolated environments, it seems like there's a glaring gap in that area because that peripheral learning is not happening anymore. So we're working on a lot of more structured learning, more structured training, um, and also ways to bring our team together to keep us learning together and kind of feeding that curiosity and bonding us over like new ideas and, and new learnings. So that's a big um, one that we're focused on in 2021. Do you think you guys will ever go back to a, to a um, office work environment? Yeah, so coincidentally, our lease was up in December and it was a five-year lease. And so we evaluated whether or not we should keep it, but we decided ultimately, oh, also our building sold during the pandemic. So that was this added layer of fun. Uh, <laughs> we met the new owners and we decided to stay for a lot of reasons. One, we just... There's so many unknowns right now that we didn't want to add another change to our lives. So we extended for a year. We're thinking about other alternatives following that, but we're going to feel it out for another year and, and see how I, it goes. I have to imagine they cut you a pretty good break for a year. If they, they, they did. It required a little bit of negotiation, but they did. Um, right. Yeah, so... We'll see, but we, we have two employees who have moved to be with family in the pandemic. And so now we have employees in Michigan, Montana, and North Carolina. Um, the rest of us are in Houston. We actually had one, one team member who joined, who lived in Virginia, who moved to Houston um, at the beginning of the pandemic, who wants to be here. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, we're keeping a real open mind. It's exciting because it opens up new, new talent resources to not just be recruiting people who live in or would want to move to Houston. Um, but we also realize there are some sacrifices with that because I, you know, I believe in remote working. It's been happening for a long time for a lot of progressive companies, but we also do work that 
can be very emotionally trying and can be a, you know, a long haul. And I think there's a lot of benefit in the bonds that are formed between us as a team. And we do a lot of cultural things like retreats and, and things like that, where we, where we take a step back and really look at what needs to happen next. And the, I think those things are so much better in person. We've had two virtual retreats this year and they were great. And they, kind of pushed us to be inventive about how we would accomplish our goals through computer screens. But, you know, we, we want some of that old fashioned together time back in the end. Sure. I think the thing that, that I really noticed is that the, the intangible 10 minutes after the meeting, right. Yep. Um, is gone. And um, that can make things more efficient. Um, like if you're talking about like some nonsense about like, you know, who won the latest sporting event, but what you lose out on is like the sparks of creativity that come right after the meeting and, and then yeah. the training and, and the training, right. Yeah. That, that I mean, comes with that. also like the 10 minutes after the meeting where you just say, okay, I'm going to do this. You're going to do this. Or did you get this vibe from this person? Did you how did you read this situation? I mean, to do that now, like maybe you're just on your own in your room, you know, thinking about that, or maybe you have to schedule a Zoom, or maybe it requires 15 different Slack messages to try and talk about it. You know, it's like the convenience of like those moments that glue things together is, is really missing in this way of working. You have been representing cause-driven firms for 11 years. I think it's fair to say cause-driven organizations have become more uh, in vogue. Um, it's certainly become more of an issue people are, are, are focused on across the board. Have you noticed, you know, as someone that's, that's been working for cause-driven organizations over the last 11 years, do you feel a shift or, or has it been this way the whole time and now just people are noticing more? Oh, no. Um it's definitely increasing. I would say 11 years ago when we announced, well, I guess nine years ago when we announced that we were exclusively going to work with cause-driven businesses, I had some of the most trusted advisors and close friends and you know intelligent business people in my life ask if I was crazy and if I was going to turn business away and if there was going to be enough business to sustain us. And, you know, at the time I was sure, I mean, because we had kind of been running things behind the scenes, more or less moving to this point and the stability was there, but it was risky. Uh, back then it wasn't necessarily as prevalent as it is now. So most people were, were thinking of it mostly in terms of nonprofit work. You know, how are you going to run an agency that just works with nonprofits? Do nonprofits even have any money? Things like that, you know, and, and I knew it was right, but like we were at, we were at the front of a movement and now, like we talked about greenwashing earlier, it's, you know, everybody is trying to make an impact and some people do it genuinely and some people don't, but the bottom line is we have millennials, 
are the you know largest force in the workforce. Gen Z is coming up, and both of those generations are they're they're demanding in terms of the choices and the values that a company upholds, and they want to see more. What do you stand for? How are you getting there? How, what's the environmental impact? You know, like, why should I give my money, my attention, my time, my like, my follow, whatever it is to you? And that's why we see a lot of follower numbers declining. You know, like you, uh, a lot of clients are unhappy with things like follower counts or the number of people who are liking a post or something like that, because mm -hmm. These generations are, are more particular about what they choose to engage with because they truly believe, and it is a part of their identity, you know? So if I like this post, then people will see that I like this post and that will be who they think I am. And there's just, there's a, a really deep, system around that, that brands and businesses need to understand. But I think it's non-negotiable at this point. Like you need to be able to tell what a company stands for and the way that they present themselves in every, you know, in every medium. And I don't think that's going away. Now, I think there are people who are doing that genuinely, people who are like, what do I stand for? Can I figure that out? Can I stand, you know, can I get to a place where I stand for something that's more meaningful, where I do something good through my work? Um, and, and there's going to be a lot of hits and misses. And we've seen that a lot in the pandemic. We've seen that a lot, particularly in 2020 with the Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, you saw a lot of inauthentic boxes checked around around you know jumping on that trend and that moment um and i think we're going to continue to see a lot of that so people need to find really true intentions in that space don't just do it because you think you have to and you need to find really good advisors around it too what advice would you give to you know if you're a business to business plumbing distribution company or a lumber company or a printer or a, a, a law firm, right? Mm -hmm. You know, are they, are they supposed to be weighing in on social change issues on LinkedIn? I mean, I, I asked genuinely, I don't know the answer. Yeah. Um, I think it's a really good question. You know, I, I think at the same time, a lot of organizations have this pressure to figure out what they stand for and to not be quiet in, a, in an environment that is becoming more and more demanding for people to stand up and speak out. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a tough thing to do. And honestly, like we, probably don't need, if everybody has an opinion about everything, that might, that might also be a problem. So I think, you know, it kind of depends on the business. You know, I don't, my plumber often does have an opinion about things and he tells me, but I, you know, does everybody need to have 
a broad statement about huge global issues in their business environment? Not necessarily. Um, so that kind of contradicts what I just said. I think, I think you have to just frame it in the context of who are, who are your customers? Who are your employees? What are your platforms? And are, I think where consumer expectations get a, a bit clearer is if by not saying something, is there an obvious void or are you maybe preventing progress that could be made? Mm -hmm. um, okay. That's a fair way to look at it. And one, one thing I think is going to become important for businesses, whether or not they speak out on their social media platforms is what kind of talent, what kind of humans do they want to work for their organization and move their organization forward? And I think as, as the generations grow into those positions and, and recruiting is a factor, there's just going to be more and more expectations for what's the culture like. And that's, that's going to include things like, what are your values and what do you stand up for? Or what are your policies around certain social justice issues? Um, how does everybody feel welcome and supported and like they're working for a company that is doing good work and, and meaningful in some way or another, whether it's, you know, moving some big issue forward or just like creating a great place to work where they have fun or they, you know, build meaningful products. Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah. I mean, not a, not an easy question to answer, but I, no. but I, but I appreciate it. Um, I feel like I'm still learning that one every day. All right. Thank you for listening to another episode of Owner Operated. If you want to help us grow the show, please leave a review on your favorite podcast app. If you think that you or someone you know would be a great guest for the show, contact us. We'll see you next week for another interesting conversation with an owner operator.